Hey, for those of you that I've yet to meet, uh, my name is Prentice. I get the privilege to be the lead pastor here at Bethany West Seattle. Uh, And whether you are here in person or watching online, and even if you are watching online, if you do want to join us for our Connect Lunch, uh, please just drive on over right after. Uh, We'd love to break bread with you as well. And so uh, my wife and I, Maria, we were out last week. Uh, And so, again, if you were here for the first time last week and I had a chance to meet you, I would love to say hello and and get to know you. But today we are finishing our sermon series called Restoration. Uh, And it's been a, I don't know about for you, but for me, even preparing for these sermons in the last five weeks, uh, it's been heavy. You you know, it's been uh, kind of emotional and it's been something that... uh, has been beautiful and messy at the same time. As we used uh, words like racism and, and even like words like supremacy and privilege and all these things, and, and I think it's important that we all uh, are on the same page with language as it relates to racism. And remember, when we talk about racism, we're not only talking about this like individual racism with person with person, although that's also definitely a thing as well, but also when it comes to uh, the structures and the systems that we are all a part of. And so whether or not you uh, or myself, whether or not we identify as being racist, we're a part of a system that perpetuates that, and so therefore we should care, uh, and we should see God in God's kingdom in all of that. And so, uh, again, it's been a heavy series. And so, this morning, as we finish off, here's my hope uh, as we kind of close off this series, is that we leave here with hope. We leave here uh, believing and knowing that with the Spirit of God, that there's a way forward. Will things be perfect forever and ever after today? No, of course not. Will ever be. Well, nothing will be on this side of heaven. And so my hope is that we will leave here with a sense of joy, with a sense of gratitude, and again with a sense of hope because God is moving in your life, in our life as a community, and even in our world, regardless of what we see on the news, on our social media posts, and so forth. And so uh, that is what I hope to accomplish this morning. And so Uh, As we start, we will look at Acts chapter 6, uh, verse 1 through 6. And the word of the Lord says this. It says, this is from the NRSV. Now during these days, they're they're at Pentecost right now. They are celebrating the festival. Now during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number... Uh, he's talking about the writer of Acts is Luke, and he's talking about the Christian movement. It wasn't called Christianity at the time. Uh, it was known as the way, the way of Jesus. Uh, the population of people following the way was increasing. So we're increasing in numbers. The Hellenists complained against the Hebrews. Now, we're still talking about Christians here. In other translations, it says uh, the Hellenistic Jews uh, and the Hebraic Jews. And again, Jewish Christians, to be clear. So the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, 
It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from amongst yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task. So to, to, to ta- the task of figuring out how we can care for the, the, uh, the Hellenistic widows. While we, for our part, and this is what the disciples were speaking, I believe this was Peter, uh, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the, uh, serving the word. Uh, and so that is our scripture this morning. Let's pray together. God, thank you that there is hope in our world because of you, because of the local church. And so may we not forget that we believe and we follow a powerful God, the God who created this universe, the God who sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross and to defeat death on our behalf, to be and live in victory. And so may we proclaim that and and name that for ourselves as well. And we'll thank you for that. We thank you. And we pray for even the division and the heartaches of this world that the list can go on and on and on and on. And this morning, even for myself, uh, as a, uh, a son of Korean immigrants, this, this topic is near and tender to me. God, even with the tragedy that happened in Seoul, South Korea yesterday, where 150 people lost their lives over being trampled over at a Halloween event. And God, we just pray for those families that are grieving, the country that is grieving. God, we even pray for our own city as we see the divisiveness, just unending divisiveness. May we be agents of your change. May we not perpetuate it. May we not be a part of it. But may we speak against it. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Sorry if that was a cryptic prayer. Yesterday uh, on the news, uh, there was a Halloween party in, in a neighborhood in Seoul, Korea, where there was a hundred and thousands of people in this alleyway trying to get to an event, a Halloween event, and people got trampled to, literally to death, and there was over 150 people that died and many more injured. And so that was kind of sitting with me last night. Uh, but okay. I want to tell you about this man named Ken Parker, and I've brought him up before because I think it's such an incredible story of redemption. Ken Parker was a former KKK, uh, not just member, but Grand Dragon, which is uh, a level of leadership, uh, for those of you that don't know, I didn't. Uh, And not only that, but he identified as additionally a neo-Nazi. He was also a leader in the Unite the Rights movement that happened in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, back in 2017, if you remember that. And and Ken Parker once was interviewed about why he joined these groups, and and his quote is this. He says, I was a grand dragon of the KKK, but guess what? He said, but it wasn't violent or hateful enough for me. And so I decided to also become a Nazi. Apparently there's levels to this game that I didn't know about. And, and so for him, just being part of the KKK wasn't enough, wasn't hateful or violent enough 
So he said he took the next step to join the Nazi movement of his community. And now at the same time, Ken Parker happened to be living uh, in a neighborhood where there was an African-American gentleman who also was a pastor. Uh, And throughout several months and years, I don't know if he would say that they developed a friendship, but they had talked, they had even asked questions about each other. Of course, on Ken Parker's side, it was probably with a little bit of disgust and racialized tendencies. Uh, But believe it or not, after some time, uh, Ken Parker and Pastor William McKinnon, who was the African-American pastor in the neighborhood, they, they started developing, I guess at some point they would say, a friendship. And as they developed this friendship, Pastor William McKinnon uh, decided to invite Ken Parker to his church that he pastored at, a predominantly uh, black African-American church. And so here is the image where uh, Pastor William McKinnon invites a self-identifying Ku Klux Klan member, the Grand Dragon, and a neo-Nazi party member, to a predominantly African-American church. Uh, You can probably sense the level of discomfort and even awkwardness, to say the least, between both of them, all of them. And believe it or not, uh, Ken Parker decided to come another time and then to come again and to come again. And, And eventually, get this, this is the beautiful part of the story, Ken Parker, the self-identifying Ku Klux Klan member, a a neo-Nazi, decided to get baptized at that very church. And so there was a Sunday where Pastor William McKinnon baptized Ken Parker. Ken, who is supposed to hate this man, this pastor, and really people in this church, based on the color of their skin, ends up being baptized by him at this church with these people that he's supposed to, supposed to despise. And if you think about the significance of this, a man he doesn't want anything to do with, Ken Parker, he doesn't want anything to do with this man, Pastor William, or the people in the congregation, is the very man in the very congregation who brings him into new life in Jesus. And this is such a beautiful, beautiful image of reconciliation. That's Ken Parker. That's Pastor William. After the ba- or right before the baptism. And, and this right here is the image of restoration. This is what restoration looks like. This is the epitome of reconciliation that Jesus has been talking about. And now this seems like a great story. And it's a true story. And it's something to admire and to love and to appreciate. But in reality, how often does this kind of reconciliation, especially to this degree, happen in our lives? How much does it even happen in our own sphere of influence, in our communities, even in our families? I have seen in the last few years, especially in the last two years, families literally be divided over subjects as politics, as race, as masks of how to deal with this pandemic and so forth. And so when we see reconciliation and restoration like that image, we look at that and say, that's a good story, but, but I have not experienced that. That doesn't happen in my family, in my community. 
in this season of politics and again pandemic in the last couple of years of what we would call racial reckoning, it seems like we're more divided than we have ever before. Some sociologists say that we're more divided now than we were during the civil rights movement in the civil rights era. That we are more divided today, right now. And this is probably not a surprise to you. Maybe you've experienced your own division with somebody, a family member, a friend, a community, a neighbor. Maybe you see this on your own social media feed. Just last week, uh, Elon Musk uh, officially bought Twitter. Now, this is not my opinion on Elon Musk or on Twitter or anything, but just to name that even, that, even that alone has created so much more controversy and even more division. There's one group praising Elon Musk for his commitment to free speech, and another believing that this free speech will increase the level of hatred and violence in our community. In fact, there was a uh, post on Washington Post that I read recently uh, quoting a, a, a research group called the Network Contagion Research Institute, a well-respected uh, institute that does research on social media content. Uh, and they said this. They said that in the last week, he said that the use of the N-word on Twitter increased by nearly 500% in the 12 hours immediately after Musk's deal was finalized. Again, hopelessness. What do we do about this? How do we move forward? What is the right move to move forward? And, and, and often I hear this from especially my white friends, and I think this is such a genuine and authentic question. It's, he says, they say, Prentice, I don't know what to do next. Not only is there a sense of hopelessness, but there's a sense of fear. Like, what if I offend somebody in saying the wrong thing? So I don't say anything at all. Oh, what if I try to do good, but it isn't actually good, and it ends up being harmful to somebody else, particularly a person of color? What, what, what do I do? Because I am so scared of messing up, especially in what we'd call this cancel culture uh, people are like, I'm so afraid of being, quote-unquote, canceled or, or pushed aside or irrelevant because I just don't want to mess it up. And so therefore, I'd rather do nothing at all. And out of that kind of paralysis, nothing moves forward at all. But the text that we see this morning that we'll dig into right now it's really, really encouraging to me, and I hope it's really, really encouraging to you because what it tells me is that restoration, the, 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 the title of our sermon series, is possible. Restoration is possible. Restoration is possible. Jesus is moving. And, and my hope, again, as we unpack the hardship of, of what it looks like, because look, Talking about racial injustice and God's heart and God's kingdom in the midst of that is messy, is difficult, is challenging. And yet my hope is that we leave here with so much hope because God is moving in the midst of all of that. And if Jesus can defeat death on a cross, Jesus can move us forward in this dark days of division. 
And our text this morning is an example of just that. It says again in verse 1, In those days when the number of, this is from the NIV, so this is a different translation, number of disciples uh, were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now you can see that there's two groups already, as we talked about as I was unpacking the reading, Hebraic and Hellenistic Jews. You see, the Hebraic Jews... Uh, were centralized in Jerusalem, in modern-day Israel, back then it was Palestine, uh, and they spoke either Hebrew or Aramaic, which was the ancestral language. It was the purest language when you are a Jew. They lived close to the temple. They lived in the Holy Land. They lived where their people are from, the land that God has promised them. This is the Jewish, the Hebraic Jews. The other group, called the Hellenistic Jews, uh, they were not in Jerusalem or even in Palestine at all. They were scattered because of the diaspora. I don't have much time to unpack the diaspora, but it's in the 6th century B.C. there was a, an exile of the Jewish people outside of, to, or they got exiled from uh, Israel, from, from Palestine. Uh, and when the temple was being rebuilt, uh, this is during the intertestamental period, some Jews were allowed back. These are the Hebraic Jews. They've been around Jerusalem for, uh, for centuries at this point, speaking the Jewish language, the, the Hebrew language, the native language, uh, studying and living in the temple. Uh, but there are some Jews, who, after they got exiled, they never returned. They were in other nations, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, speaking what the, the Hebraic Jews would consider pagan languages. So they, the, the Hellenistic Jews, were speaking Greek, predominantly Greek. The word Hellenist, Hellenist, it means in Greek, to speak Greek. And so these were just the people that spoke Greek. These were people that lived in what was deemed as pagan nations, living under pagan rule and a pagan empire, living outside of where the temple is, the holiest of holy places, outside of the land that, that their God promised them, the land filled with milk and honey. So you could see where the story is going. There's two types of Jewish Christians at this point, and really two types of Jewish folks. One that, were, that was living in the promised land, speaking the ancestral language, and others outside of that. And, you, and you're right, if you... If you assume that there was a division, absolutely there was a division. The Jewish and the Hebraic Jews looked down upon the Hellenistic Jews. They were deemed as the second-class Jewish citizens. And so when they came together, especially here for Pentecost, for the festival, there was a, again, a division with the distribution of goods to those that were most marginalized. And in this day, it was they were the widows. And, and it probably wasn't an accident that what they would deem as the second-class Jews, the Hellenistic Jews, their widows were overlooked. They weren't cared for. They weren't provided the resources. There was a polarity during that day. And many of us today, we can resonate with that. And again, one can safely assume that the reason why they weren't taken care of is because they were not Hebraic Jews. They were the wrong kind of Jews. 
You see, widows during this time were considered the most vulnerable and marginalized and oppressed group of society. They didn't have power, especially in a patriarchal society. They didn't have a voice, they didn't have work, they didn't have much resources. And so the Christian community came together literally every day and collected food, collected money, financial resources, and then divided it up to those that were in most need. And yet, the ones that were missed were the Hellenistic widows. They were further marginalized. They were further oppressed. And in a sense, it was because of their race. There was racism that was happening. But what I can't ignore and what I hope we can't ignore is after they complained, listen to what the response was. And actually, I love this. The response was this. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men, again, because of a patriarchal society, from among you who are known to be full of spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, believe it or not, there's, something, there's a few things that we can learn from here when it comes to restoration. I love their response. You see, there was a complaint from the Hellenistic Jews. Do you see what's happening? Because you deem us as second-class Jews, our widows are further suffering. They, they don't have food, they don't have money, while you're, because of your partiality and your favoritism and essentially your racism against the Hellenistic Jews, your people are prospering and your widows are well-fed, and your widows have all the resources, and your people are doing really well while we are suffering. And the complaint, and really the direct translation, is the idea of murmuring. They were talking amongst each other. They were complaining to them. They were just really upset. And here's what I've seen happen in some of those cases. And we see this even all today. There's complaining around racism, around prejudice, around discrimination. And the natural response to many people, including myself, when I'm being accused or blamed of something, is a sense of defensiveness or a sense of, I know this has become a buzzword, but the sense of gaslighting, like, oh, that's, that, that was just a joke. Or, or, and I hear this a lot, like, Prentice, that, that wasn't racist. That was just a joke. I wasn't trying to, you know, be mean. I was just trying to be funny. Or there's a sense of, well, why does everything have to do or be about race, Prentice, or somebody who's bringing that up? Or, or, no, that's not me. I wasn't the one who had slaves. I wasn't the one who was yelling racial slurs. Like, don't blame it on me. Not that anyone's blaming it on them. But essentially what we see a lot, what we see here in the first century when this was happening, and even today, is that when people are expressing their complaint, their hurt, their, the pure visceral reaction to what they see in terms of the racism and the prejudice and the discrimination, oftentimes we see a level of dismissive or defensiveness. And here's what I want to say as far as the application that Acts is teaching us is that restoration is possible when we listen to one another. 
Restoration is possible when we simply just listen to one another. And when I say listen, I don't just mean to check a box with, okay, now it's your turn to talk. And really what's really happening is one word is going out, coming in one ear and out the other because you want to check off the box where you said, well, I listen to the person. We do this. Shoot, we do this in our relationships. We do this in our marriage. Or maybe, is it just me? Or sometimes it just happens, right? That was a joke. But it happens. We do this in our friendships. There's been times, and maybe this is me because I, I'm kind of an intense person sometimes, and I know how I want to, what I want to say, and oftentimes it is a rebuttal to something I disagree with, but I want to check the box that I listened, and so I let the person talk, and I'm not even actually paying attention because I'm creating a, a, a rebuttal that I'm going to say right away. As a matter of fact, I even say to myself, I'm going to wait till that person is finished because what I'm about to say is going to be so good. I'm going to win this debate or this discussion or, or I'm going to prove my point or whatever it is. So much so that we don't even listen to the other person. And, and oftentimes we do this. And so when I say restoration is possible, and really this is the starting point, is when we listen to one another, I don't mean just to check a box to let someone have this time domain of speaking. It really means being fully present and showing true empathy of what this person is actually saying and what they are actually experiencing. Restoration is possible when we let our defensive guards down and enter into the work, the hard work of not only listening, which leads to confessing, which leads to repentance, which leads to forgiveness, Restoration is possible when we don't just react to what we hear, but we actually engage as difficult as it is, as messy as it is, without the sense of defensiveness, without the sense of needing to protect our reputation, our own selves, our own identity, just to listen and to know what it feels like to be in the shoes of the person that is experiencing such pain, such trauma, such hurt. There's an author named Robin D'Angelo. She's a PhD in multicultural education. And she even wrote a book and coined a phrase called white fragility. Now, even the term white fragility can put up a guard, and and what I want to say is, hey, we're talking about listening. Let's breathe, and as we listen to the other, Robin D'Angelo talks about this idea of right fragility, which refers to the feelings of discomfort a white person experiences when they witness discussions around racial inequality and injustice. Now, I would say this. Remember, we're talking about the framework of systemic racism, where there's a power dynamic between people with privilege and power, which here in the West is white people. And and there is this ideology of racism, which says that there's a hierarchy, that the lighter your skin is, the more superior 
you are. Now, of course, that is of the devil. That is not true. That is not the way of Jesus. But that ideology is real. And, and so Robin, Dr. Robin D'Angelo's idea is that whenever the people of power, in this case, white people, when we talk about racism, there's a fragility. There's a tenderness. There's a sense of sometimes guilt and shame. So, so let me just preface with this. White fragility, in terms of the way that Dr. D'Angelo says it, it's not always necessarily a bad or a malicious thing. Oftentimes, and many times, even amongst my own friends, and experiences the, the sense of defensiveness and fragility because of the sense of guilt. Not a place of maliciousness. And so because of that fragility, it's easier to just step away and not to listen, or just to listen and to walk away and do nothing about it, or just to listen, to check off a box and say, I did something, and go back to your own life as if nothing ever happened, as if you didn't actually hear the story of somebody experiencing a societal pushing out of society because of the color of their skin. But when we address that fragility, and really this could be for anyone and everybody who just feels really defensive or, or shut down or shrivels up, my encouragement to us is that this art of listening isn't just letting words go in your ear, but it's actually to sit with the other and to engage and to experience the messiness. Now, uh, for those of you that know me, that part of the way that I live into our community, our neighborhood, uh, through my passion is that I coach a CrossFit class uh, in White Center. And so I'm really into or really curious about fitness and, and wellness and all those things. And I was listening to a podcast. Uh, and I remember the physician, the, the, he's actually a neuroscientist on the uh, podcast. He says this when it comes to the world of fitness, and I, and I couldn't agree more. He says, without stress, there is no growth. He says, without stress, there is no growth. Now, obviously, for him, he was talking about the context of fitness and wellness, that, you know, when you work out, like, if it's really easy, if it's really, if you're, like, not even breaking a sweat, if you're just walking around the gym, if you're, you know, not even engaging in that at all, you're not going to see results. You're not going to see results. But if you're in there, and of course in the proper context where you're not hurting yourself, you feel a little bit of that pain. You, you, you lift a little bit heavier, or you run a little bit longer, or you breathe a little bit heavier, or you sweat a little bit more, and you feel the tension in your body, you feel the stress, not just the psychological stress, but the stress in the fibers of your muscles, uh, then that is when growth happens. He was saying that in order to grow muscle, uh, what is literally happening in our bodies is that there's fiber tissues tearing in our bodies. And the way that the muscle grows is the recovery of that. And so without the tearing of the muscle, there is no growth. Without that kind of pain or that stress, there is no growth. And I would say when it comes to this conversation around listening, 
Sometimes it is painful. Sometimes it's offensive. Sometimes we want to put up our guards because we didn't do such a thing, or that wasn't our intention, or it was just a joke, or it wasn't me, uh, you know, who had slaves, or it wasn't me that said racial slurs, or whatever those things. We want to put up all these defense mechanisms because we're afraid of the stress that the conversation and what listening does. And may I encourage all of us, myself included, is that without stress, there is no growth. And so may we listen to one another without a rebuttal, without defensiveness, with our arms just down, not needing to protect ourselves because we're both achieving and pursuing the same thing, which is restoration. Secondly, Restoration is possible when we trust one another. When we trust one another. I love their response. The disciples said, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. Then says the proposal pleased the whole group. There wasn't skepticism around the proposal. Now you have to see what, this, what is happening here. The, Jew, the, the Hebraic Jews, the people who, who in the eyes of society had the power, who had the privilege, who had the uh, elitism, they had the power to do what they had to do. If they wanted to provide for all the widows, they, they could do that. If they didn't want to do that, they didn't have to do that. It was up to them how they wanted to solve this issue in Jerusalem. But here is what happens. The, 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 the Hebraic Jews say, choose seven in your group, Hellenistic Jews. We will turn over the responsibility. We will give you the power. We will relinquish our privilege. And we will trust you to make the right decision for your own people. And so the people with power gave up their power and said, those of you that are oppressed... You make the best decision for yourself and for your widows. There wasn't skepticism. But the people of power, the, the, the Hebraic Jews, didn't say, well, let me take care of this because they, didn't want, they weren't afraid that, well, now their, their widows wouldn't be taken care of. That's the idea of scarcity. They weren't running on this idea of scarcity. They weren't running on this idea of domination or keeping the power or keeping the privilege or being the one that is on top the whole time. They said, you know what? You're right. There's a problem here, and as a matter of fact, it's so much of a problem that we want you to do what's best for the people that are being oppressed for your own people. There is a level of trust between the two groups. Now, trust doesn't just happen overnight. Again, listening is great. Listening is the first step. Listening is not a box that we check, but it's a doorway into relationships. And I love what Dr. John Gottman says. He writes a book on relationships and marriage and trust, but I think this is applicable to to really every relationship. He says, trust is built in in very small moments, which I call sliding door moments. In any interaction, there is a possibility of connecting with your partner or with somebody or turning away from your partner. So here's the deal. My hope is that as we listen to one another, we develop trust with one another, and trust takes time. 
Trust is all about entering into these small moments. Because these small moments might be small for you, but big for somebody else. It's not turning away because it's messy, because it's hard. It's not turning away because there's offenses and mistakes. But you enter into this relationship, especially with those that are different from us, trusting that we can learn from them and we have something to offer them as well. Trust that when people are telling you their experience of hurt and pain, that that is actually real. And it's happening in their lives, whether you feel it or not. Just like any other relationship. If someone has an offense, if someone has this experience of your actions towards them, you could easily just just push it away and say, I didn't do that. That didn't actually happen. Or you can actually listen, develop the trust in saying, I trust that I may not know what you feel or what you have gone through, but I trust that you're telling me the truth. Restoration is possible when we believe that listening is important, when we believe that trusting is essential one another through relationship. And lastly, I'll finish with this. Not only listening, but not only building trust, but to take the work of racial injustice and reconciliation seriously. Restoration is possible when we take the work seriously. Now, I look at this text, and you can just imagine what's happening. He's saying, look, here's my complaint. Look at all the uh, Hellenistic Jewish widows. They are not being taken care of. And and Peter and the disciples from the Hebraic Jews, they say this. They say, well, here, we trust, we're listening. We trust that you will take care of it and do what's best. We're not going to do we're not going to do it because we already are busy with something. We can't just sit and wait on tables, essentially, is what he says. We can't wait on tables because we have to pray and share the gospel with the world around. Now, here in the western eyes and even the world today, that when we talk about waiting on tables, you think of servers and you think of going to restaurants and you and you go to food services, And because of that, because of our own interpretation of where that person is in terms of, I don't know, with our own elitist attitudes, myself included, they are in the social hierarchy. We say, well, that's really trivial. Well, that's really condescending. Peter, how can you say that, hey, we don't have time to wait on tables because we have more important to work. How could you say that? That is so offensive. Well, we're really bringing in our own context and our own uh, projection on how we view hospitality and service industry, frankly. Because what Peter is actually saying, he's saying that's actually really, really important work. Waiting on tables, waiting, a better translation in the Greek is serving. Serving tables is actually just as important as what the disciples were doing, serving the word of God to others. Because what their understanding is, in order to live a life of faith, the kingdom of God, there's two things you got to do. You have to serve tables. You have to give sacrificially. You have to act. You have to move. You have to do something that exemplifies the second part, the love and the word of God that we're learning and listening to. It's two parts. It's loving God, loving others, and doing something about it. 
Dr. Brenda Saltram McNeil says this, and here's the way I'll end. But if we're not careful, it is quite possible and tempting to be more in love with the idea of reconciliation than to actually engage in the actual work of reconciliation, the arduous, painful, and messy marathon work of reconciliation. Now, waiting on tables was serious work. People that were involved, it says, were Stephen, Philip, Parmenas, uh, Timor, and others. These were important people that were commissioned to do the important work of providing for the people that were marginalized and oppressed. Now, sometimes we think posting something on Facebook or Instagram is enough. Sometimes we think, you know, putting a yard sign is enough. Now, don't get me wrong. These are all good things. Sometimes we think just reading a book is enough. Again, another great thing. Sometimes we think just having a single conversation is enough. Another great thing. But, as Dr. Brenda says, this is an arduous, painful, and messy marathon of work. Will we take this seriously by listening to people that are hurting, by trusting their experience? Will we take this seriously because the, the kingdom of God says that this is serious work. So do not fall into the lie that restoration is impossible. It is absolutely possible. The spirit of God is moving. As it was moving with the disciples, it's moving with us. And when Jesus died and overcame death on the cross, this became the hope that we need and the hope that we need to believe in for the restoration of all things. There is nothing impossible, no matter what we see in the news and our social media feed. God is commissioning us, just as God commissioned the disciples, to be agents of this work of restoration. And as I invite Taylor back up, may we just enter a sense of reflection, enter a space of hope. And maybe one of these three things resonated with you. What do we need to do a better job of? Maybe it's just starting at the place of listening. May we listen to the people around us with intentionality, with being present. May we trust. Maybe there's a, there's a mistrust here, and oftentimes because we're not listening well enough, maybe there's a mistrust here. Maybe there's a sense of relationship building that we need to do with others that are experiencing pain that we don't understand. Or maybe the third is true. Maybe we need to take the work of restoration more seriously, that it's more than just a Facebook post. It's more than just signaling how righteous and virtuous you might be. Those are those things that in and of itself are good things. Sometimes it requires entering into this marathon of work, and sometimes it's messy and painful and arduous, as Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil says. But at the end of the day, may we feel empowered that God is moving that the Spirit of God is in us and enables us to bring a sense of reconciliation with others. We're not going to change the whole entire world. We're just not going to do it. But we can change the world that we are a part of, that God has placed you in. And that is more than enough. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have called us into a hard, messy, arduous marathon of work called restoration in the midst of racism. 
And we thank you that your spirit is within us to do the hard work that you're already moving. We're just participating in what you are doing already. And so, God, may we listen to those that are hurting. May we trust their experience. May we take this work seriously because you take this seriously and convict us in the way that we need to be convicted of. Maybe it's the beginning place of confession. Maybe it's a place of listening. Whatever it is, God, show us what we need to do next in the work of restoration. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's finish with a song of celebration and joy and hope in our Lord.